there. You're listening to the Collective Church Podcast, recorded live at Collective Church in Roanoke, Texas, with co-lead pastors Courtney Clark and Megan Lawton. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning and welcome to Collective Church. Um, We're actually going to be taking a break from our parable series, which I know we just started, but there's a lot going on in the world right now that I would be doing a disservice to myself and to our community if I ignored and went on like everything was fine. So first, I want to say those of you who are feeling afraid, unsafe, or unsure um, about this country, if you want to raise your kids here, I hear you. I am you. Um, And I can't ignore the violence that's occurred not far from us um, in Uvalde or in Buffalo just a few days ago. If you are not in a place where you want to discuss those things, if you um, are not in a place where you can kind of dive deep into some of that grief and that pain and what that looks like in today um, going forward, you are welcome to turn off the podcast or step over into our quiet room, um, enjoy coffee and snacks, what have you, um, and come back with us in a couple of weeks. We're going to be talking, uh, we're going to be going back to Jesus and nonviolence from a couple of weeks ago. We're going to be talking about that this week and then again next week. Um, so if you're, that's not a place where you're at. If you need to have space, that is more than fine. And I totally get it. Um, just know that this might not be, um, a podcast that you want to listen to or, um, feel free to step out. So we're going to pivot this week and go back to our conversation on Jesus and nonviolence from a few weeks ago. Our country has really felt like it's in a downward spiral for a long time now, and it seems to just be picking up pace. For a long time, I really thought I could shove my head in the sand and just pretend like none of it was happening and that maybe things would get better because this is supposed to be the best country in the world. But I can't do that anymore. And I find myself looking to Jesus for answers on how to do this differently for ways I can tactfully fight for the world I want for my kids. And to be honest, everything inside of me is raging at the pain, the hate, the disconnect, the active dismissal of humanity all around us. We talk so much here about bringing heaven to earth now, and usually I can see it all around me. But this week, right now, I don't really see it at all. I see the country I lived in my entire life and hope to raise my kids in, burning to the ground. This week, I feel the pain deeply. And to be honest, school shootings aren't new, but in the midst of everything else, this one just feels like the icing on the cake. Since about 2016, and honestly, it was probably long before that. That's just when I really started to pay attention. There's been a disconnect forming between us, a collective, all of us, and things have been unraveling at the seams. It doesn't feel so united anymore but more every man for himself, from the top all the way down. So my question today, as cliche as it might be, is what would Jesus do? If he was here, in the midst of the pain and the suffering, in the midst of children killing children, in the midst of a world where the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer, or where rights are being threatened every day, what would Jesus have to say? There are certainly groups here who claim Jesus would be One of the ones wielding the sword and telling teachers what they can and cannot talk about in the classroom. Or the one refusing to wear masks. Or shouting from the rooftops that the only solution here would be for teachers to carry firearms to school. But to be totally honest, I don't want any part of that Jesus. That Jesus seems hateful and violent. The Jesus I know 
finds the humanity in everyone and celebrates it. The Jesus I know fights power and balance with nonviolence. The Jesus I know fought for community and urged his followers to share their resources rather than hoard it for themselves. The last time we talked about nonviolence, we talked about this creative power that goes into creating this as a new way of life. That it's not an automatic response when we're faced with an uncomfortable power dynamic. It has something that has to be practiced and we have to always be thinking of and creating a third way when it seems as if there are no choices. And today it feels like there are no choices. I've talked to a lot of families this week who are looking at options to move to another country where guns are regulated or even outlawed. And honestly, I've had some of those conversations with my own family. But what if there's a third way? And I'm not saying leaving for a better world is a bad option. It's just not feasible for many of us. It's financially and emotionally expensive to uproot your life and leave your livelihood and all of your support systems behind to find refuge somewhere safer. Not to mention that there's a years-long waiting list for a visa status if you're so lucky to find it. So for those of us who can't run or plan to run but are in the process, what do we do? What do we do right now? Is there a third way? And I think, yes, transitioning to live in the third way requires creativity, absolutely. But staying there requires something more. It requires community. This is something that our country, quite frankly, doesn't have anymore. There's kind of the stigma that we can be all and do it all by ourselves. And there's a re- immense shame if we can't. Asking for help feels like giving up. And it hasn't always been this way. People talk about the village. I know it existed at one point. I remember even as a kid, my mom sending me outside and I'd find five or six other kids playing in the front yard. And then we'd alternate on whose house provided snacks for the day and not go home until dinner. In our neighborhood now, we know one family. Everyone else we just kind of see as they back out of their garage for work. If I didn't know any better, honestly, I'd say the house is empty. Gone are the days where I can send my kids next door or down the street to grandma when I'm at my wood's end. Everyone's too busy, too focused on their own lives. More and more, it's starting to feel like I don't have a place to belong. More and more, it feels like I'm disposable. And if I'm hurting, how much more is everyone else? How much more Are those who don't have a church or a supportive spouse or the one neighbor to talk to? How much are they hurting? I can't stop thinking about it. I can't stop wondering that if I'm feeling this deep sense of emptiness now, how will my kids experience the world when they grow up? How different could our world be if kids had more than just their parents, but an entire community of people loving and supporting them? Systems in place to prevent them from failing and falling under the cracks? How much violence can we prevent if this kid in Uvalde had had even one person to sit and cry with him through the pain? To help him find the resources and the help he needed to overcome whatever pain he was in? Would any of those kids have had to die? Statistics show that anyone who opens fire on a public space like that has been throwing red flags for months or years before they escalate to that level of violence. The teachers know who these kids are. People around them know who they are. But when the teachers report them or their parents call and ask for help, they're told they have a right to education. There's nothing we can do. The system waits until they're failing to decide to do something. 
at that point, it's too late. People have died. What if the system was different? What if this kid and Uvalde had had access to mental health care when he needed it most? What if this kid, when his teacher reported these red flags, the system had stepped in and not allowed him to purchase guns the day he turned 18? If they had been there along with him, helping him through whatever it was that he was suffering. And I'm by no means making excuses for the murders in Uvalde or in Buffalo. Those actions are deplorable, gruesome, violent, and disturbing. That's absolutely something that shouldn't have happened. And to be honest, no one's ever going to know why they performed such a heinous crime. But something like this happening so close to home is a reminder to me of the lack of community for all of us. There's a healing in community. Restoration, change, grace, and peace. After 9-11 and after Columbine, communities came together and we found a sense of togetherness, of community that wasn't there before as our nations worked toward healing. But unfortunately, violent acts like that have become so common, it's easy for us to ignore them now. Gone are the days people rally together after violence and find a new way of moving forward. Instead, we stand around and send hopes and prayers, holding white-knuckled to policies that contribute and even allow things like this to happen. And I'm not here to talk about policy or my stance on gun ownership or the Second Amendment. Rather, I want to hold space today for those of us who are grieving, who are afraid. And then I want us to stand our ground and find a new way. Everything inside of me wants to burn it to the ground and start over. We ha- I-, I want to live in a place where my kids can attend school and I know they'll come home at the end of the day. Or where people of color can run to the supermarket and not be gunned down because of the color of their skin. But that's not the reality that we live in. And if we respond in violence, we only breed more violence. So there has to be a a new way, a third way. There has to be something different. We have to have options. Jesus was an example again and again and again of fighting violence and oppression with malicious compliance, of standing in rage, fighting back with nonviolence. This is a way of living that can't be done alone. It can't be done without community. For real change to come about, we need a community of people willing to hope for change and the very people who hate us, the very people who support the things we stand against, the very people upholding systems of power and oppression, and the people who white knuckle to their gun rights, making them more important than the lives of innocent children, to the people who have positions of power and refuse to do anything other than send hopes and prayers. If we're so angry that we can't see their humanity and their potential for change, we become a part of the problem rather than the solution. Author Naran Desi, who was a follower of Gandhi, said it this way, Nonviolence presupposes a level of humanness, however low it may be, in every human being. In other words, to live in nonviolence, we must be willing and able to see God, even in the smallest of fraction, in everyone. There is no one and certainly no entire group of people in who the light of God has been totally extinguished. So faith in God is having faith and hope that anyone, no matter their past or their stance on policy, can change. This started with Jesus, but it became a reality within the community he was a part of. He lived in such a way that others joined him. Change didn't happen overnight. It took generations of people living in the third way, hoping for change, actively pushing against systems of power with nonviolence, with love. The very heart of the third way has to be love, true love for all of humanity. 
Community isn't merely a place for like-minded people to gather together. Rather, in a larger sense, it's finding belonging. Finding that you're worthy of being loved and allowing the love of God and the love of others to shower over you. The people we disagree with have the same deep-seated need for belonging just as we do. Shame researcher Brene Brown says this, a deep sense of love and belonging and is an irreducible need of all women, men, and children. We are biologically, cognitively, physically, and spiritually wired to love, to be loved, and to belong. When those needs aren't met, we don't function as we were meant to. We break, we fall apart, we numb, we ache, we hurt others. She goes on later to define belonging as the innate human desire to be a part of something larger than us. So if we are to fight oppression and find the third way, we must recognize the real humanity in our enemy. We must love our enemy. Which which means we recognize the very people who hold up and contribute to oppressive systems of power as children of God. Jesus repeated the two greatest commandments to his followers, love God and love your neighbor. But he takes it even a step further by defining the neighbor as the good Samaritan or the man who cared sacrificially for the person he would have considered his enemy. Then he goes so far as to say in Matthew 5:44 in the Sermon on the Mount, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus isn't giving it pass to abuse. Enemies wouldn't have been a foreign idea to Jesus and his followers. They were working class citizens in an occupied territory in which the Roman Empire used force and terror to wield their power regularly. This was a deeply persecuted people. Jesus' urge to love the enemy wouldn't have been taken lightly then, just as it's not taken lightly now. As we talked about with the Sermon on the Mount a few weeks ago, Jesus isn't urging passivity. He's urging his followers instead to take the high road. Don't become the things you despise about Rome. Don't turn around and torture them for torturing you. Instead, love them. See their potential for change. Love them and see that maybe, just maybe, one day, they'll be able to look you in the eye. And instead of seeing you as a cog in a wheel or as a means to an end, they see you as an equal. He's challenging us to love because with love comes power. With love comes real change. With love, we signed something totally new. Instead of replacing power with more power, it's different. It's new. It's kingdom here and now. When we write people out of the book and claim that they're too evil or too vile, When we say that they've made too many wrong choices, we play God. We become the very thing that we hate. And we deny the humanity of that person or that group. We deny them a sense of belonging, perpetuating the cycle of loneliness and violence. When people feel loved, when we continue to see the potential for change and even the worst of us, we leave the door open for real belonging and real change. Loving the enemy is the only way we survive this age of terror, as it's been called. Walter Wink says, either we find the God who causes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, or we may have no more sunrises. 
we can become the hate and be consumed by the darkness that we're fighting or we can choose to love and always see the good always see the potential for change for goodness and of course honestly it feels impossible to forgive anyone who would continue to allow guns to fall into the hands of a person who could murder innocent children for fame or to prove a point or what have you in fact I would say it's even natural to feel that deep-rooted rage right now. And I don't think that's wrong. What loving the enemy when we're filled with rage and hatred does is it forces us into grace. Where there's a divine forgiveness of God that can burst even in the darkest grief and free us instead to love. I don't want to I I don't want it to feel like I'm saying skip over the grief and the rage and go straight to forgiveness. We need to hold space for the grief too and we need to do what we need to do to grieve and to feel the pain and feel the fear. But that hate, that rage, that grief, it's valid and it's good. But what I'm urging for myself and for all of you is don't get stuck there. Use the hate, use the rage to propel you forward into making change. If we choose to sit in the pain, real change is not going to happen. We will never see the world that we imagine. Forgiveness doesn't mean we're giving a free pass to abuse or forgetting that it ever happened. It's a path to freedom, to see the potential over the rage. Jesus lived this, embodied this. Even in his dying breath, he shouted, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Martin Luther King Jr. lived this. In fact, the idea of love your enemy was the very breath and life of the entire civil rights movement. The week of the marches in Selma, Alabama, which of course was a crucial point in the civil rights movement, there was a gathering of activists outside of Ebenezer Baptist Church. Our black funeral home operator from Montgomery arrived at the church and began sharing a story of a group of student demonstrators that had been beaten near the Capitol shortly before his arrival there at the church. The students had been surrounded by police officers on horseback and then barred from escape and beaten by said police. The circle of mounted officers would block ambulance from entering to assist these students for two hours. The gathered crowd grew increasingly angry, rightfully so, as the story unfolded. Meanwhile, across the street stood in rank a line of Alabama state troopers and the local sheriff, Jim Clark. Amongst the rage and the hate that was brewing in the demonstrators at Ebenezer Baptist Church, Reverend James Bevel stepped up to the mic and he said this, We aren't just fighting for our rights, but for the good of the whole society. It's not enough to defeat Jim Clark. Do you hear me, Jim? We want you converted. We can't win by hating our oppressors. We have to love them into changing. And in fact, after hearing that speech, Jim Clark actually did go on to change and later confess that he was wrong in his bias toward blacks. Not because they overpowered him or because their hate was greater, but because they chose to love him. Because they reflected his own humanity back at him and hoped in his potential for change. Because they included him as human, as worthy of love and respect, even if he wouldn't give it to them in return. When we choose to see humanity and the people perpetuating systems of oppression, those politicians and the billionaires, 
We see them as people harmed by the very system they're trying to uphold. We begin to see their insistence as fear. Fear of losing their livelihood. Fear of losing the only way of life that they've ever known. We begin to see that they have mortgages and families to feed that tie them to the economic system that's harming all of us. We see that they're under immense pressure from all sides to save face, to look like they have it together, just like we do, or just like we are. When we see them as human, we see them for what they really are, and that allows us to hate the system instead of hating the people, and then work together toward changing it. Gandhi actually worked really hard to exude this um, approach to change. He was trying to convince his opponents that they were fighting not just for victory over their opponents, but for fundamental justice for all of them, for all of society. Gandhi and his followers actually refused to use the Nikonian Temple Road for months after securing the right for untouchables to use it as a way to buy time for the people in positions of power to make it look as if they backed down of their own accord, as if they came to this agreement together, rather than just surrendering to protests from Gandhi and his followers. Gandhi referred to this way of protest as nonviolence of the strong, defining this as a seeking the opponent's good by freeing him or her from oppressive action. Right now, holding on to this hope feels really, really hard. But please, if you can hold on, even by a tiny thread, please hold on. Because we need you in the fight. This has to be collective. That has to be done in community. We have to rise up and become the very thing that they don't want us to be together. The system once operating as cogs in a wheel, angry at one another. Because if we're so consumed with our own lives and hating our neighbors because they're different than us, we ignore the real problem. The system that sees us as replaceable. We have to set aside our difference and choose to fight for a better world for ourselves and for our children. It's a slow going fight that's raged on for generations. But look at how far we've come. If you can't hold on to hope for tomorrow's change, hold on to the hope from yesterday. See how far Martin Luther King Jr., Nelson Mandela, and Gandhi moved the needle. And look for them all around you. Because in them you find the kingdom. I'll close with one last quote before we one last quote before we open up to communion. Marxist Milan Makovic said, The enemy must be be resisted insofar as he serves the power of darkness. Although it would be better to say that the power of darkness should be resisted rather than the enemy. He should be seen not as the servant of darkness, but as someone who is capable of future conversion. Therefore, though he uses evil means, despotism, the sword, forced, darkness, one must not answer him with these same means. If one answered him in kind, with lies, deceit, violence and force, one would be denying oneself and him the future and the possibility of change. One would be perpetuating the kingdom of evil. We're going to play a song, um, and then we're going to move into communion. Uh, and today I just want communion to be a reminder of our vulnerability with one another um, and the vulnerability that we share when we break bread and drink wine together and a reminder of the community that we're in that we're a part of that we're building the potential 
for all of it to be good, the potential to move forward together, to create a better world, to create a better society, one in which we can see the humanity in one another, one in which we stop hating each other and fighting over everything. (laughs) So may the body be broken and the blood poured out for you. This has been the Collective Church Podcast. We post episodes every week on Sundays. If you're interested in supporting our church, you can give at collectivechurch.net slash give. I hope you enjoyed listening. Thank you.